Ever since Jesus was born, there has been great debate on who he is, and sometimes it's led into conflict. You're talking about Yeshua, you know, that brown guy who's a refugee, a uh, big socialist. And some people used him for their political agendas. The most famous person in the world by far said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no. He said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ. Others used him to make sense of their experience. Was Jesus gay? Either way, there's a clear question being asked. Who is Jesus? The question that our generation of young people on the campus are asking today is, who art thou, Lord? Who is Jesus? You're listening to Young and Sanctified. I'm your host, Justin. And every episode, I talk to some amazing people hoping to cultivate childlike faith and seek Christ-centered knowledge. So, grab your coffee and a notebook or whatever you need and join me as we grow together. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Strauss, New Testament professor at Bethel Seminary. He has an impressive line of both books and articles. You should check him out. We will be talking about his book, Four Portraits, One Jesus, A Survey of Jesus and the Gospels. The second edition came out in 2020. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Strauss, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Justin. Yeah. So this is the first episode of my series on who is Jesus. And I thought, what better way to start than focusing on the gospel's portrait of Jesus. You know, many people like me uh, come to the gospels with many assumptions of who Jesus is. Instead of being informed by the gospels, we like project our understandings. And so um, let's just clarify first, what are the gospels and how should we approach their different portraits of Jesus? Right. Well, um, I define the Gospels in my in my textbook as historical narrative motivated by theological concerns. Uh, so they are narrative, that is, they are stories, um, but they are stories that are meant to reproduce history, historical narrative. Um, th- they are not just biographies, though, biographies alone or just um, neutral, if you will. They are theologically driven. The, the Gospel writers are passionate advocates. Uh, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and they want to proclaim that. So they are preaching and proclaiming the good news, which is what makes them Gospels, really. The, 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 the fact that they are called Gospels means that their primary purpose is to announce and proclaim the good news that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection brought and accomplished salvation for all humanity. Mm-hmm. And so they are not unbiased observers. They are theologians in their own right as well as historians and storytellers, uh, narrative historians, so historical narrative motivated by theological concerns. And, and in your book, Introducing Jesus, you um, offer this idea, I think it's horizontal reading, right, and vertical reading? Huh. Both vertical and horizontal, yeah, yeah. And that book, Introducing Jesus, is an abbreviation of the Four Portraits, One Jesus, the, the larger survey textbook. Um, but yeah, th- those are two different ways to read the Gospels. Um, by vertically, what we mean is is reading them from top to bottom, that is through the story. You read the introduction, 
the, the conflict, the resolution, the climax, the resolution, as you would any story. There has been a tendency, particularly among evangelicals, to harmonize the Gospels. That is to be seeking, instead of hearing each individual Gospel as a narrative, as a story, rather to glean each Gospel for data about the historical Jesus. And the goal then becomes to piece together what we can know about the historical Jesus. Well, there's nothing wrong with piecing together what we can know, but that's not the way the Gospels are written. They, we believe they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, each individually as a story, and therefore to cut and paste them, to cut and paste and try to harmonize them into a one overarching harmonistic life of Christ is to, in some ways, distort what the Holy Spirit has done. The Holy Spirit has given us four unique stories, um, by taking them and trying to create one, we are turning one divine story into a human story, if you will. And so one of the key points of the book is that we need to read vertically, that is, down through the story from beginning to end, each individual story. We should not harmonize them into a single life of Christ. However, there is, there is um, an opportunity and um, an importance to reading them side by side, and that's what we mean by horizontally. And by that, we mean comparing their accounts. But the reason to compare their accounts is to see each gospel's unique perspective and emphases. It's not to harmonize them together and create a new story. It's basically by reading Matthew beside Mark, we see what Matthew emphasizes different from Mark or what Luke emphasizes different from Matthew, what their particular theme in theology is. Because really, the, the inspired document is what the author produced, what Matthew produced, what Mark produced, what Luke it's not an inspired document to cut and paste them together into a, a full story of, of who Jesus is. Um, that we, we, we do historical Jesus studies where we're trying to determine everything we can about the historical Jesus. That's one thing. But that's not primarily why the Gospels are written, nor is it how we should generally read them in order to teach them and mm -hmm. preach them. Yeah, and, and you, you mentioned briefly, um, in, at least in, in introducing Jesus, uh, that there is like a conversation on whether who wrote the Gospels. Um, can you uh, talk briefly about that? Because there was one quote that I found particularly fascinating from the first chapter. It said each oh. um, Gospel also likely arose in a different community within a different yeah. church. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. Let's talk. We can talk about authorship first of all. The, the question of authorship, in uh, strictly speaking, the Gospels are anonymous documents, hmm. and by that we mean that no author names themselves. Matthew doesn't say, he doesn't have a prologue saying, I, Matthew, wrote this, and the tax collector, and, and telling us who he is. Luke uh, clearly has, his his prologue clearly, um, his readers clearly know who he is. He writes to Theophilus, probably the patron that sponsored his gospel, but he still doesn't identify himself explicitly, but as Luke, for example. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually traditional identifications that the earth, the church and I think probably they got it right. The church remembered who had written this, these Gospels and uh, applied that name. And in fact, our earliest manuscripts, which are copies, uh, hand-copied documents, um, say kata uh, mathion, according to Matthew, according to Mark. Um, but almost certainly those arose when the four Gospels were brought together as a collection. They were added just to, to distinguish each one. And again, I think they're probably accurate des designations but they're not part of the document itself. So I think we should not emphasize authorship first because that is actually a traditional designation that is not part of the inspired and authoritative narrative, not part of the authoritative story. 
Now, I think all four Gospels have direct connections to the apostles in one way or the other, either as a second-generation source. We know that Luke and Mark were not apostles, were not part of Jesus's ministry, or as a primary source. Matthew was a disciple. John was a disciple. I think that's true, but I don't want to use that foundation to interpret the Gospels because that's they came to us essentially as anonymous documents, as documents that, that don't highlight the author, they highlight the story and who Jesus is. Um, and by each one written to a specific community, there's a debate about that today, a debate about almost everything, but um, Richard Baucom, who's a brilliant New Testament scholar, um, edited a book called The Gospel for All Christians, and he argues against the status quo. Uh, the status quo is basically that each gospel is written to a distinct community and reflects the needs and concerns of that community. He argues more or less against that, arguing that, no, these Gospels are written for all, all believers everywhere. Um, and some of the evidence he uses for that is, he says, well, the Pauline letters are written to direct and specific communities, but the Gospels don't have that kind of direct address. And I think, in part, he's correct. I think the Gospel writers had in mind that this was the Gospel for the church that they were writing. It wasn't just for their community. At the same time, they were parts of a individual church community, as everyone is, um, and I think they were thinking especially and writing especially for the needs and concerns of that community. That's, that's been really sort of the historical perspective. Um, Mark's gospel, for example, has, has traditionally been identified with Rome, the church in Rome, and Mark, with Peter, sort of wrote Peter's version of the gospel, but he's writing to a church that is severely persecuted, and the theme of suffering and taking up your cross and willing to, to, to die and suffer for Christ is a major theme, probably related to the original context, that is the, the suffering and persecuted Roman church. So I do think each of the Gospels was written in a particular community to address the needs of those communities. That doesn't negate the fact that the Gospels were also meant ultimately for the church as a whole, both probably in the mind of the author. They were thinking it was going to be copied and passed on as well, Plus, of course, in the mind of the Holy Spirit, who produced these works through these authors, um, certainly all along it was intended for these Gospels to be for the church at, at large. Mm, got it. Yeah, that's so good. So let's get into the nitty gritty then. Um, what are some of the Christological themes of, of each Gospel? I know, I mean, just like abbreviated, you know, I know you've written a book, I think I'm like a, com a whole commentary on Mark, right? Yeah. So I know you could do it for yeah, a couple, actually. A couple, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, and that's that's the to me. This is where things get exciting when you start talking about the each unique mm -hmm. portrait of the Gospels, and in some say that ways they overlap. I mean, I call Matthew the Gospel of the Suffering Son of God, um, and of course, all four Gospels present Jesus as the Suffering Son of God. But Mark has a special emphasis. Um, a third of Mark's Gospel is the last week of Jesus's life. It's sometimes it's been described as a passion narrative with an introduction that the whole thing is a passion narrative. And there's some truth in that. And I think when Jesus, what we call the uh, central section of Mark's gospel, the way of the cross is so crucial. Jesus he heads to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and he's calling his disciples to, disi to discipleship, basically, and, and to be willing to take up their cross and follow him. And so th that suffering role of Jesus, um, um, the, the central theme, uh, Mark 10, 45, probably encapsulates the central theme of Mark's gospel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that theme of an Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, drawn from Isaiah 53, 
no doubt, is just really important for Mark and calling his readers to take up their cross and follow him. So Mark as the gospel, the suffering son of God. Matthew, and I I start with Mark because I do think, as with most scholars, that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke have built off Mark. Um, I think they they read naturally that way. Once you read Mark, you can see how Matthew and Luke. So I always I start with them in my Gospels text. Um, I also s- start with them in in sort of summarizing the themes. Uh, Matthew is actually a perfect gospel to come first in the New Testament because it, it really is a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Matthew has this strong emphasis on fulfillment. It's the most Jewish of the gospels, the most deeply connected in some ways to the Old Testament. A dozen or so times, Matthew specifically says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he gives an Old Testament quote related especially to Jesus' birth narrative, but also throughout his life and ministry. He identifies fulfillment of scripture in Jesus' words and deeds. So Jesus as the the Messiah, the, the, the messianic king who accomplishes God's salvation, fulfills the promises. That's Matthew's theme. Um, Luke's theme is very distinct in some ways. I mean, picks up those same messianic themes and suffering themes, but but Luke's got the most inclusive gospel by far. And when you add Acts to that, it becomes even more inclusive. And Luke and Acts are really two volumes of a single work. Um, I think Luke, when he started writing the gospel, he already had the, uh, the book of Acts in mind. And the story that begins in Jerusalem in, in um, Luke 1 doesn't end until you get to Rome in Acts 28. 28 in the last chapter of, of Acts. Um, so I, I do think that's that's a critically important um, connection between Luke Luke and Acts. And, and all along the way, Jesus is reaching out to the outsider, um, particularly in what we call Luke's travel narrative, Luke 9 through 19. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, um, and he's discipling the disciples all along the way, but he's also telling parables. And so many of the parables are related to God's love for the outsider, God's love for the lost. Parables like the prodigal son, for example. Parables like the good Samaritan. Parables like the rich man and Lazarus. They, they, they show the world turning upside down as the, as the rich and powerful are brought down and the poor and humble and weak are lifted up. And then you've got the prodigal son right there in the middle the lost son, the lost sheep, and the lost coin, those three parables of lost things in Luke 15. So really a distinct theme, and it's consistent throughout Luke that Jesus is reaching out to the outsiders. It begins in the birth narrative with Mary and Zechariah. Their songs in the birth narrative are how God takes the mighty and powerful and brings them down and lifts up and exalts the weak and the humble and the poor. Um, And so major theme throughout Luke's gospel um, and that sense of inclusion um, and then, of course, in the book of Acts, that inclusion of the outsider within Israel becomes the inclusion of the Gentiles, and the Gentile mission becomes central, the ultimate outsiders from Israel's perspective. And the whole book of Acts is about that transition from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so God's love for and his salvation for all people everywhere becomes the central theme of Luke's gospel. Yeah, I was really... M- Moved by, um, I, I, how do you pronounce his last name? You said it, Richard Bachman. Bachman, Bachman, yeah. Bachman. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I think it was Echoes of the um, of the Gospel, like that book about how the um, Gospel echoed uh, the Old Testament, and he walked through Luke huh. uh, chapter four and how it had echoes huh. of conflations of, I think, like Psalm fifty eight and Psalm sixty one. Um, mm-hmm. All That's about right. justice and all about liber- uh, liberation and 
yep. freedom. And and yeah, I, I can definitely, hearing you say that, I could definitely see the themes of um, what you just said of the outcasts. And that passage in, in Luke 4 is crucial because Luke brings it forward from a later point in Mark and it begins Jesus's public ministry. And he's, he recites, you're exactly right, he recites Isaiah, um, um, Isaiah 61 with, with a, a portion of Isaiah 56 there and 58, I think maybe it is. And um, it's all about God's love for the lost and that, that he's proclaiming good news for the poor and the prisoners and the outcast and, and very central to, to Luke's gospel. So why do you think that Luke's gospel had an emphasis on, well, that specific em- emphasis, the outcast, the poor? Well, I think because he's ultimately going to tell the story of the gospel to the Gentiles who are the ultimate outsiders. And so justification of the Gentile mi- mission and that's why Paul is such a prominent player in the book of Acts, is because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So that, that tra- Luke's all about continuity, the continuity between the Old Testament, between Judaism and the church. The church is the fulfillment of Judaism. And mm-hmm. the mission to the Gentiles was all along part of God's purpose and plan. And so justifying that Gentile mission begins with justifying gospel to the outsider in the gospel. And then in the book of Acts, it becomes the ultimate so- outsider which is the mm-hmm. Gentile. And it moves from Jerusalem to Samaria, right? The, uh, the intermediary between the Jews and the Gentiles, if you will, and then ultimately to the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius and then in mm-hmm. Paul's ministries and his missionary journeys. So interesting. So that, that that's really new to me. I've never heard that. That's beautiful, actually, how the, the Gospel of Luke prepared uh, people for the inclusion of Gentiles. So what was, so you already mentioned it, Rome, um, was the possi- uh, possible location of the orig- um, origin of Mark. <laughs> so, But why would they need uh, like a suffering servant while they were under persecution? What was the connection there? Right. Well, I think, you know, the, 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 the justification for how could Jesus the Messiah suffer and die? There's an apologetic concern always there. I mean, so, you mm-hmm. know, crucifixion was, was a horrible punishment that was reserved only for slaves and, and re- rebels, insurrectionists. So to say Jesus, your Messiah and King, was crucified is to just, you know, say he's irredeemable. I mean, there's no way that someone who's crucified could possibly be the Messiah. So there is an apologetic focus there. But I do think there's also um, an encouragement to the church that is suffering these same kinds of things, that it's it's worth it all because because Jesus has conquered death, Satan's sin and, and death through his his resurrect his death and resurrection mm-hmm. and that um by virtue of that death we can come into a right relationship with him and we can it, it, it per- personally endure suffering and be victorious in the same way that jesus endured suffering oh, and yet was victorious So also in Mark, I'm throwing throwing a lot of questions at you. I'm sorry. That's okay. No, that's fine. My Accordance software, I use Accordance. uh, That's what Fuller uh, gives us. And when Mark says son of man, you know, and and using Uh um, the Accordance software, it it leads me down to an article where it says that son of man was a very political term. Uh, Is that true or is that um, something that it is connecting to the politics of where um, what was going on at the time with Rome? I, I would I would say Cinnamon was much less political than Messiah or Christos. Oh, um, Christos, the anointed one, um, 
certainly in Judaism of the time had more militaristic connotations, oh. particularly based on a work called the Psalms of Solomon, an intertestamental book, um, where it says it calls on God to raise up the son of David, the Messiah, mm. um, to defeat Israel's enemies. To And it's clearly talking about the Romans in that context. So I do think that the term Christ or Messiah would be a more political term. There's a huge debate as to whether Son of Man was a messianic title, title for the Messiah in Judaism. Hmm. There's a book called First Enoch um, that was, it, it's part of the pseudepigrapha, part of the, the books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in a section called The Similitudes of Enoch, the Son of Man appears as a messianic figure called the Son of Man. But there's a big debate as to whether that is pre-Christian or post-Christian, that section of, of First Enoch. Um, and so we don't know for sure whether Son of Man was a Messianic title in use at the time. It clearly comes from Daniel chapter 7, where one like a Son of Man or like a human being, the word Ben-Adam or Bar-Anash, they are make, both mean human being. That's really what the term means, one like a human being, Son mm. of Man. Um it comes before the Ancient of Days and is given all glory and honor and power and a dominion and a reign. So, you know, there is justification to take Son of Man as a Messianic title in, in the book of Daniel, but we just don't know whether the Jews were doing that at the time. There's very little evidence as to whether Son of Man was a title. So I don't think it was a, a very political title. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus used it, because it was it was a title he could instill with his own idea of what the Messiah was, rather than um, conf you know, being conformed to, to the popular expectations related mm. to the gotcha. Messiah as one who would come and establish a physical kingdom and defeat the Romans. Mm. So, I, yeah, I do think it was less political than either Son of David, oh, wow. for example, yeah. or Messi no, Messiah makes total sense. or Christos. Interesting. Um, so, Book of John then, right? Yeah. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the Synoptic Gospels because they have basically the same storyline, many of the same stories. 90% um, of Mark's gospel is found in either Matthew or Luke. You get to John, and 90% is unique. So John is a very unique gospel. Um, most of the stories are unique to th that gospel. Probably the reason for its differences, it was written somewhat later. Most scholars date the gospel of John to the late first century, and the church was facing other issues. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke all emphasize strongly that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Promised One. John has a strong emphasis on Jesus as divine, as God himself, the self-revelation of, of, of God. So almost certainly the church of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's day was really challenging whether Jesus, or the, the, the challenges to the church was whether Jesus is the, is the Messiah, whether he's the fulfillment of these promises, um, whether the kingdom of God came. But in by John's time, the question is, um, well, twofold. I think it's, was Jesus truly divine? Was he God, um, as the church was proclaiming? And also, was he truly human? That's the other side of it. Some, some were saying, some called docetists were saying that, that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was, he was, but he was not truly human. He was merely a, merely a spirit or, or didn't suffer as a human being. So both of those, I think John answers, um, in, in his prologue in John 1, he says the Word was with God and the Word was God, identifying Jesus as both distinct from the Father, yet one with the Father in the sense of truly divine. Then a little later in the prologue, he says, and the Word became flesh, became a human being. So there's the divine side of who Jesus is plus the human side. And that theme 
is so consistent throughout John. I, I call John the, the gospel of the um, the son who reveals the father because all of J- John's from beginning to end is the self-revelation of God through his son. Um, and that theme of self-revelation, I think, is consistently put forth throughout the whole of the gospel of John from beginning to end. So when John says, um, in the beginning was the word and we're, you know, and Jesus is the word, um, how are we, how was he using that? Do you think? Because I know yeah. Justin Martyr um, really pioneered Logos Christology. I think it was Justin Martyr. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I don't know. Um, but anyway, Logos Christology was really pioneered, you know, in the early church, not huh. in uh, this Gospel of John. So I, how are we supposed right. to understand this one? Well, as you're probably, I'm sure you're aware, there's a big debate about that. What's the background to the Logos Christology in John's Gospel? And, you know, the two big um, contenders are, is it, is a Greco-Roman background? Is it a Greek background, or is it a Jewish background? Mm-hmm. And I think almost certainly John is clearly immersed both in Hellenistic, the Hellenistic world as well as the world of Judaism. So I don't think we can isolate either one. Mm. I think it, he probably knows well knows the background in both, and and is using them, exploiting them both, and presents a unique um, synthesis, if you will, um, of the Lagos. The Lagos Christology, I think, is a synthesis in some ways. It's it's certainly Jewish in the sense that what is the word of God in the Old Testament? The word of God is the efficacious action of God. God merely speaks the universe into existence. Hmm. Um, so God judges with his mouth. He simply speaks. You know, the, the the messianic figure in Isaiah 11 has a sword. You know, he, he's he's judging the nations with a sword coming from his mouth. That's that's spoken judgment. So so the word is actually God's self revelation as well as as his actions in in creation, his actions in judgment. So to say that Jesus the word means that he is God's revelation and God's actions in the world. Hmm. Um, Lagos in Greek philosophical thought often had this idea of sort of divine reason, or the essence of the thing that holds the the whole universe together kind of the foundation of all things. And so that would fit well also with John's Lagos Christology. So I don't, personally, I don't think we can say it's an either or. I think it's probably a both end in terms of the conceptual background. Uh, but John certainly weaves it into his own, his own unique way. It is neither purely Jewish nor purely uh, Greek in its background. I think it's it's uniquely Jahanine in, um, in, that's, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that John uses it um, to explain who Jesus is, and that is as God's self-revelation. Oh, interesting. So, I, I, I'm, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. Is there uh, in John that scene um, with the uh, Samaritan woman and the demon-possessed daughter? Is that in John? No, um, the, the the Samaritan woman is in John, but the woman is a Canaanite, Canaanite. or. A, Syrophoenician in in Matthew she's a Syrophoenician or she's a Canaanite in Mark she's a uh, a Syrophoenician but no that the story of the woman with the demon possessed daughter is is in the synoptics it's in uh, gotcha. Matthew and it's in in Mark yeah but of course the Samaritan woman at the well is is in John John yeah. four but what do we so how do we interpret that scene because a lot of people um, bring that up. And just trying to wrestle with it sounds like you know uh, she compare he compares her to a dog right the, yeah yeah so how, actually that's one of my favorite stories oh, so I'm glad you asked that okay story, great that's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels and it's it's such such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is both historically as well as in the narrative hmm. account but Jesus is 
on a bit of a, out, a trip outside of Israel. He's up in Phoenicia at the time. And even there, people have heard of him. And a woman comes to him who has a demon-possessed daughter and begs him to heal um, the demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus responds and says, it's not good to take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. Mm. And uh, the word dogs was used in a derogatory sense of the Gentiles. And so Jesus um, really does something that is incredibly insulting, but also incredibly in line with the, the sort of the focus the Jews had with reference to the Gentiles. It's interesting. He does use a little diminutive form of dogs. Hmm. Puppies is probably too cute, but uh, because dogs were viewed as scavengers. And so it's not a compliment by any means, but he does seem to soften it a bit. Um, but it's her response. So he says, basically, he dismisses her and says, I, I, you know, I've got bread I'm bringing to the children who are Israel, but I'm not going to throw it to the dogs, who you Gentiles. And what is Jesus doing? As so often, I think he's, he's got his tongue in his cheek in some ways. He is echoing exactly what the disciples are thinking at this point. Get this woman out of here, right? She's got nothing to do with us. She's a Gentile for one thing. She's a woman for another. Um, we have important business to do. Um, you know, let's not take our bread and give it to this, these dogs. So Jesus sort of echoes what, what is the Jewish expectations of his day. And the woman replies and responds and says, but even the dogs uh, pick up the, eat the crumbs that fall um, from the, the children's table. And Jesus is impressed. And he, he says, for that answer, um, your daughter is healed. And heals his daughter. And um, what is really interesting is this is the only time in the Gospels Jesus ever loses a debate. Um, whenever he engages in a debate with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, with the rich and the powerful of his day, he wins. He defeats them. He humiliates them. He shames them. He always wins. This is the one time he concedes, I was wrong, you are right. Because he says, basically, first he says he's not going to help her because you don't take bread from the children and give it to the dogs. Then he says, you know, you're right. I will help you. Um, now, you know, hmm. there, there are two contrasting interpretations. One is that Jesus suddenly came to his senses and he realized, you know, maybe the gospel should go to the Gentiles. But that is so different than Jesus in the gospel. Jesus is in control throughout the gospels. Now, you can challenge that historically, of mm -hmm. course, but you can't challenge it in terms of the narrative of each of the gospels. Jesus is in control. There's no way that Jesus suddenly comes to his senses. Jesus is doing what he so often does. He's playing with her. She's, he's provoking faith. He's trying to challenge her and provoke her faith. Hmm to greater faith. And that's just what she demonstrates. She demonstrates, she challenges him and says, I demand what God has prepared for me, which is salvation for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he says, you know, you're right. I was wrong. I just love that. Mm. So Jesus loses a debate and he loses it to a Gentile and to a woman. That's the only time he ever, he ever actually loses it. Mm. So it tells you something about the importance of this theme that God's, God's salvation is for all people everywhere. It was always intended to be forever. The Jews were to get the bread, but the Jews were to get the bread in, in order to share with others. They were given light in order to be light. Mm -hmm. They were meant to be reflect God's glory, reflect God's light to the world, and not turn inward and exclusive, but rather be, be God's people, be God's messengers, be God's light, be God's salt. And, and in many ways, the nation had failed. It had turned in, in, inward and rejected the, the, the Gentiles. And so Jesus is challenging that throughout his ministry. And this is one of, I think, the my favorite passages where he does challenge that and he, he acknowledges that God's love all along was meant to be for the Gentiles, mm. for the nations. Wow. That is definitely a 
redeeming interpretation, you know, than what other people have told me. So I, right. that's that's a beautiful, that's really beautiful, actually. It does capture a lot of what, you, what you've just said. That's amazing. Um, so, so then what about the fig tree? You know, <laughs> that one has stumped me because uh, the commentaries made me realize that's the only time that um, like destructive power of Jesus appears in the in the Gospels. Mm. So what about that yeah, one? What, yeah. what does that tell us about? Yeah, Jesus? miracles of destruction. The only other one like that is when he casts, which is equally difficult, and that is when he sends the spirits into the pigs, pigs. and the pigs all drown, yeah. you know, and you've got destruction of great property. <laughs> but yeah, I think you've got to read that in its context, the, the parable of the fig tree. Um, and again, I will start with Mark, because I do think Matthew and Luke both both draw from Mark, mm-hmm. and I think Mark's story sort of brings out most clearly what Luke or what what Jesus is doing in this context. Um, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Um, actually, it's his second day. The first day at the triumphal entry, he comes in, looks around, and then leaves. And the next morning, he comes in, um, and it says he comes to this fig tree to see whether it had fruit. Um, and he finds no fruit on it. And then Mark tells us why. He says, because it wasn't the season for fruit. It wasn't the time when you would, you know, the fruit was there. So Jesus, you know, it, he obviously didn't have breakfast. His blood sugar is running low. So he gets angry and curses this fig tree, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the cursing is bad enough. But then the next day they come back and they find the fig tree has been withered at its roots. Mm-hmm. And we go, well, that was kind of a mean thing to do. So in a fit of temper. But then we realize that between these two episodes, You've got the clearing of the temple. Uh, Jesus curses the fig tree. He clears the temple, and then he discovers the fig tree to be withered. Hmm. And we we realize that this is a parable. And Jesus is a prophet, and prophets tell these kinds of parables all the time. They 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 use uh, illustrations, um, object lessons, if you will. Um, Jeremiah does it. You know, he breaks the pot in front of the temple to demonstrate the temple's going to fall. Well, you got the same idea going on here. When Jesus clears the temple, he isn't just cleansing the temple. He is symbolically destroying the temple. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the temple has, has failed to bear fruit. Um, a little later in the same gospel, in the gospels, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenant farmers. If you go back, that story goes back to Isaiah chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard, where, where basically the vineyard is not producing fruit, so God allows it to be destroyed. And in the tenant farmers, the same thing happens. The tenant farmers refuse to give the fruit of the vineyard to the, to the owner, and so they are destroyed. Well, what is Jesus doing? He is symbolically demonstrating that Israel has rejected their Messiah. Um, Israel has rejected its mission, and they will, Israel is going to be destroyed. Hmm. So what does he do? He curses a fig tree. Fig trees are symbolic of Israel in the Old Testament at times. He then clears the temple, symbolic of destroying the temple because of its its waywardness because it's not producing fruit then he discovers the fig tree to be withered and throughout mark's gospel he uses a pattern a literary pattern over and over again we call it intercalation or a sandwich structure where a story begins it's then interrupted by another story and then it ends after that Mm -hmm. Um, and there's there's like seven examples because we see so many of these it's clear that mark is intentionally doing this and the stories mutually interpret one another and inform the others. And so the same thing happens here. You've got the story begin, the cursing of the fig tree. Um, you've got it interrupted by the clearing of the temple. Then you've got it concluded with the discovery of the withered fig tree. So you know that these are two stories that are related, that are mutually interpreting. And so 
you know, then you read the parable of the tenant farmers, and, and it all makes sense that Israel is not producing fruit, so it's going to be judged. And, and you know, in the same context, Jesus predicts the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and the temple in the Olivet Discourse in, in Mark chapter 13. Um, so all of these pictures are that Israel has rejected the Messiah, not born fruit, and so Israel is going to stand in, in, in judgment. And uh, so that intercalation or framing episode explains Jesus is not, you know, low blood sugar, having a tantrum at this fig tree. Rather, he is performing a prophetic action, demonstrating that because Israel is not bearing fruit, Israel is going to suffer judgment and destruction. The vineyard's going to be taken out of the hands of those religious leaders, as in the parable mm-hmm. of the tenant farmers, and mm-hmm. it's going to be given to others, the church, that the apostles are going to take the mantle of God's people onward from, from that point. So I think it, it makes perfect sense in that context. Hmm. Okay. So we have four different theological, theologically rich portraits of Jesus. What is the role of the like the everyday Christian? How are we supposed hmm. to approach these? Because are we supposed to? You said like don't harmonize it, but you also say. Uh, they all are part of the gospel and uh, part of the New Testament. They all have been approved by every tradition, uh, orthodox tra- uh, tradition in history. So how do we approach yeah. this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I would say approach them as they were written, hmm. as as individual stories. So in other words, when you're going to teach and preach to, don't teach a harmony because then you're missing so much. You're missing much of what the Holy Spirit gave. Instead, hmm. preacher teach through Mark's gospel. Preacher teach through Matthew's gospel. Um, stay with that gospel story because that's that's the way it was inspired. That's what the Holy Spirit gave us. And I, I would also say, you know, obviously we often preach um, either in a lectionary kind of a setting or where we're, we have select readings. No matter where you start, um, take into account the narrative framework of that story because it's part of a gospel and um and and I, and I think bringing out that gospel theme is really important when you're preaching and teaching so if you're preaching the parable of the prodigal son for example um s- placing that story in first of all Luke 15 where there's three parables of lost things there's a lost sheep there's a lost coin there's a lost son it's crucially important to place that in that context mm-hmm. i think but then also to place in the context of Luke's gospel that's going to climax with the statement about Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You've got, you've got that's all part of Luke's gospel. And so it's great to preach the prodigal son. It's a powerful story on its own. But always when you preach it, whether you, know, you take five minutes or two minutes, make sure you set it in the context of the story as a whole. It's going to make it so much more powerful. And because it is part of what Luke is trying to his readers take with them from beginning to end. We don't we don't start a novel and one just read one chapter of the novel right in the middle of it. We we place it within the context of the flow of the story, and it's an integral part of that story. So I do think that kind of narrative preaching and teaching is really important, even if it's just to say this is what came before, this is what Luke is mm-hmm. doing in this passage, this is what he does elsewhere in the gospel. Bring that out. I think that's really a powerful way to preach. And I think people will appreciate that as well. They'll, they'll begin to see those patterns and will begin to appreciate the Gospels for what they are, historical narrative motivated by, by theological mm-hmm. concerns. So when we separate, um, 
when we set that set the gospels aside as a like preaching or or bible studies and we are trying to answer this question for the next few weeks few months of who is jesus should we look at huh. it and say okay according to the gospels jesus is all those things the suffering servant the messiah hmm. the um, liberator or you know the person who helps the poor and divine or how, so is that how we should look at it all you know kind of harmonize that when we look at a christology well you in other words should you do a christology separate from the gospels and i, I think there is a legitimate place for that in teaching um of course you could add to that you could read hebrews and present jesus as the great high priest which is not as emphasized in the in the the gospels that theme um though some would say it, it does appear implicitly in there and and there's other themes in in um in Paul for example that that um christological themes that don't appear as prominently elsewhere so i think it is legitimate to draw out say christological themes um personally i think it's more powerful to teach through the text than to teach it in a thematic way um but that's my bias i think um so i i would more strongly recommend teaching through the stories as i would through the letters, because I, I do really think the idea of narrative or story is fundamental to understanding the Bible. Ultimately, the Bible is a meta narrative. It's a, it's a grand story from beginning to end, and every book within that has its own story to tell, and we need to think of it from that narrative perspective rather than just drawing out thematically from the text. But but that's a preference, I think. I'm not sure that's a mandate. Uh, so last question, and and. Um, going back to that quote I mentioned earlier about the gospel communities, I know you mentioned that that's under debate, and you actually the what you just said um, earlier about uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Richard Bauckham. Uh, Bauckham, B A U C K. Bauckham. Yeah. B A U C K A H A M. H A M. Yeah. Yeah. Bauckham. Um, th- that was very fairly convincing to me, and I'm going to have to check that out, but. I'm still curious, though, because we we live in a globalized, pluralistic, uh, technological world, uh, and each community's, I think, still doing the same thing of um, bringing, you know, uh, not conjuring, but developing their own theological concerns when it comes to Jesus. So, should should we reconcile it in the same way that you are suggesting? Um, reconciling the four different accounts of Jesus. Like we, we just recognize that those communities are developing their own theological concerns um, and we should take it like that? Or do you, how do we engage with that? Um, I know that's stepping away uh, from the gospel portrait of Jesus, but um, that's the direction that the, the yeah. next few episodes are going to go. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think um, we have to be cautious in two areas. First of all, we do need to be cautious that we don't build our own Jesus because our tendency and has always been in the church is to create Jesus in our own image, of course. And so we get, you know, in America today, we get the macho Jesus, the cowboy, um, the John Wayne Jesus, this kind of thing. And and there's going to be an, an inclination for us to create Jesus in our own image and make him um, into what we want him to be. Um, that's one concern. Um, the other side of that, however, is that we individually and as a culture have a limited perspective because we, we see things through the eyes, through our own eyes, the eyes of Western, white, maybe male, depending on your gender and identity. 
perspective, and we're going to be blind in many ways to uh, others' perspectives that can be equally insightful. So I want to hear the voices of others, particularly internationally, particularly different ethnic groups, um, people from different contexts. I want to hear their perspective on Jesus as well, because I'm going to have blind spots where I'm not going to understand who Jesus is. So I think we, we need to be careful we don't create Jesus in our own image, but we need to also listen to others and hear the voices, diverse voices around us, because the church is the church worldwide, and too often the, the theology of the church has been dominated by, by Western Christianity mm-hmm. rather than by a more global perspective. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. No, so helpful. Um, and so rich, full of great advice. So I do appreciate that uh, perspective. Um, I do want to wrap up and I want to honor your time. So just thank you so much for uh, giving us some amazing information and amazing scholarship. Um, and I'll, I'll have uh, the books that you mentioned in the links uh, in the below. You said, so introducing Jesus is the abbreviated, what's the the textbook? It's abbreviated version of Four Portraits, One Jesus. Okay, I- which is the full-blown textbook yeah. with all the charts and graphs and pictures Amazing. and stuff. So. Amazing. So I'll have both of those in the link, uh, in the both of those linked in the description. Um, so thank you so much again, and I am so grateful for this conversation. Thanks, Justin. Blessings on your life and ministry. I appreciate your time as well. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.